new series, Maverick. Um, not Top Gun, but, but Maverick, because we didn't want to use Top Gun, because obviously that get flagged. And I have seen Top Gun, the original, and now the new. I saw the new one twice. I went back and watched the original again, and I went back and watched the new one one more time just to make sure I didn't miss anything. And in, and in all of those times that I've seen this movie, I had no idea what Maverick was. I just thought it was a cool name that Pastor Dylan named his new dog. I just thought it was cool. Like, but I didn't know what it was, so we looked it up. And the definition of a maverick, this is going to blow your mind, the definition of a maverick that we found is actually an unbranded calf. I know, right? We're like, that's not what we thought it was going to be. So we looked a little further, and that was just one definition. I just want to share that one with you because we thought it was dumb and funny. Um, but the actual definition is an unorthodox or independent-minded person. Unorthodox or independent-minded person. It's like a person that's not swayed by present propaganda. Come on, I think that that's healthy for the people of God to not be personally swayed by propaganda. And by the way, on Fox News or CNN, because y'all all getting swayed by propaganda and laying, I ain't got time to preach that sermon today. A maverick, as we're defining, is someone who is willing to do things and go through things that other people are not. Like come to church without air conditioning. I'm just saying, like it just happened to fit today that this would happen. We live in a society where people are willing to follow Jesus as long as it works out the way that they expected it to. We don't live in a society where people are willing to follow Jesus no matter the cost. And a maverick in American Christianity is someone who is willing to follow Jesus, do things and go through things when and even if other people are not. If you want to see a maverick in Scripture, turn to the book of James. Now, some people read James and are like, man, James was mad. He was mad. He was mad at himself. He was mad at himself for not believing in his brother while he was here on earth. And he was preaching his own conviction when he began to write this apostolic book that does have a little bit of a different tone to it. Joel Osteen has a hard time reading James. I'm just saying. Like... <laughs> Because it's in his tone. I, I don't got nothing against Joel. I, I think he's a nice guy. It's, it's really impressive what God chooses him to do in the kingdom and blah, blah, blah. I, I don't really listen to him much. But it's just, I mean, when you read James in a Joel Osteen tone, it just don't really make sense. <laughs> it seems like James needs to be read in somebody else's tone. Hi, I'm Chris. Let's read James. Verse 2 of James chapter 1, it says, Dear brothers and sisters, look, hey, don't let him fool you. He's about to smack you. <laughs> Dear brothers and sisters, ah, he says this in the first verse. Count it all a joy when troubles of any kind come your way. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I'm not good at that one. I'll share more in a minute. Verse 3, for you know that when your faith is tested, and may I propose to you that it's not actually even faith until it is tested. Until it's tested, it's just a feeling that sounds good. 
Until it's tested, it's a get-out-of-hell-free card that most people turn in whenever it gets too hard. Oh, hey, come on. It's faith when it's tested. And when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. I had to do it one time. Just one time. I'm done now. Let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Well, you can't be perfect in this life. Oh, yeah? It's not what James said. Well, you'll never be perfect. It's not what James said. He said that there's some things that you're going to have to go through in order to be able to get there. But God is in a process of perfecting you if you'll allow him to do it. And you will be a person that is not a needy, whiny, crybaby Christian. You will be a person... You ever been around Christians long enough? <laughs> Christians are the whiniest, sometimes the laziest, and yet the most super spiritual, prideful, and arrogant people that you could ever be around. No wonder people don't want to come to church with us. <laughs> they can go to the bar and experience more joy than most people have in the house of the Lord. Come on, somebody. It is time that we flip the script in the face of Satan and understand that God has not called us to comfort. He has called us to change this culture. It is an unorthodox approach. It's uncommon. It's people who are willing to do things and go through things that other people are not willing to do and or go through. What is an unorthodox approach? What is a maverick in this culture? I think, number one, a maverick in this society is somebody who has an eternal outlook. I know we talk about this a lot. We talk about an eternal perspective often. But an eternal outlook is truly, when something goes wrong, it is truly turning to God and going, okay, I gotta, you need to, I gotta have your help. I need you to help me see this the way that you see it. I, I need your perspective on this, God, because right now I'm not getting it. I think the best example that uh, we could come up with of an eternal outlook, has anybody seen the series Alone? Have you watched that on the History Channel? Just wave at me, Alone. Okay, most of you are not going to get this example. About five of you, this is going to be fun for you. The rest, I'm about to teach you something. Um, there's this series alone where they drop off ten people. And, and it started out, they were just dropping off dudes. And then they decided to add women. And, and the whole thing is, it's, it's really, really intriguing. We watch it sometimes as a family. I can't say there is some language in, in there. It's like a little bit of poop in the brownie. There is some language. Um, they bleep out most. Some of you don't get that joke. It's okay. Um, the they bleep out most of the language, um, and, and we watch that. At, we watch it because we like to watch people suffer. Um, that and AFV, like it's our go-to. <laughs> it's the best shows on earth. So they drop these 10 people off in these remote areas. Uh, Vancouver Island was like the first season. I think they dropped some people off in northern. They dropped some people off in the Arctic. Arctic. So hard to say for this redneck. Arctic areas. And, and then they leave them there. And they're like, all right, who can survive the longest? But here's what's interesting. These people are self-proclaimed survivalists. Like they say, I can survive. I'm prepared. I'm trained. I'm ready. And then they dump them off alone in the place where they're supposed to be able to survive. And these self-proclaimed survivalists, 
don't stay. It reminds me of a lot of Christians. Hey, come on, you knew I was going there. It reminds me of a lot of so-called saved people. They say they're saved. They say they're trained. They say they're discipled. But then you put them in something that doesn't make sense to them, and they won't stay. Drop them off. These dudes, I got one guy's crying, crying after six days. Six days. I have lived in 1,500 square feet with five people, three of them under the age of seven years old. You drop me off on an island by myself. That is not an opportunity to survive. It is an opportunity to breathe, y'all. That's not a challenge. That's a vacation. This survivalist calling home after six days. Now, 10 days, I might be like sideways. I saw one dude went home after one day. Now, in his defense, bears were scratching on his tent. He's like, hey, bear, hey, bear. It's, it's, I'm like, it's funny. I'm about to ruin season seven for y'all, though. If you've never seen it, spoiler alert. This dude named Roland, he's crazy. He's Alaskan. He builds this shelter. He survives alone. And they, like, interrupted him, too. He's, like, confused when they show up. I mean, this dude has lost it, too. <laughs> but he is there. My man shanks a water buffalo with a knife. It's sick. I'm just, I was like, just want to watch that episode over and over again. Roland is in this place, and he's going fishing out on this frozen tundra. And he has his fishing hole there, and he, it starts to snow. So he's like, man, I better get back because he had walked way off on the lake. And, and all of a sudden, this thing referred to, I'd never heard of this. I grew up in Louisiana. We don't have these, but a whiteout. If you didn't grow up, if you grew up in an area where it snows, especially out on like a frozen pond, if it begins to snow on top of a white pond surrounded by everything that's already covered in snow, you can experience this whiteout. It looks kind of like this. There's, this is actually a picture of a road and a telephone pole. This isn't the picture from alone because they won't let us see one. Anyway, so we took this one. And in the moment, the whiteout, it was actually scaring this guy who lasted 100 days and won a million dollars because he stayed. But he's telling the story that people, they'll get so confused by this whiteout that they'll just lay down and give up. This temporary, earthly perspective will cause them to just lay down and give up. And they have found people who laid down, gave up, and passed away 10 yards from their shelter. So close. And I thought, man, what a picture of Christianity. So many people will walk so far and they'll go through so much. But the temporary, the whiteout causes them to, to give up and or give in. And I'm not trying to stir up any feelings today uh, of, of this kind of a tragedy. But I, every time that I think when somebody begins to take or tries to take their own life in their hands, I think, man, what a horrific thing that you would give up God's greatest gift of life over something temporary. Now, if you have a family member or a loved one, I'm so sorry. I'm not trying to bring that up. I'm actually trying to speak as you would have a burden for. I'm trying to speak to people that have maybe considered taking their life in their hands over a temporary whiteout. See, we need to see from God's perspective this 30,000-foot view 
See, this is what it looks like from God's perspective. Yeah, there may be a whiteout over here, and that's Breckenridge, Colorado. I, I went as a kid. I love Breckenridge, and I'd love to go on vacation there, but my life is cold, so we don't go. Anyway, so, and, it's a true story, though. We haven't been yet in the name of Jesus. Uh, this is Breckenridge. I think this is God's perspective. He's saying, listen, I know it's hard right here, but this is what I have if you just don't lay down and give up. Like, you got to keep walking. You have to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Maybe you need to stand still. Come on. Maybe you need to wait in the Lord and let your strength be renewed. Maybe that is what he wants you to do. But you got to keep following Jesus. And you got to continue to obey. Because there is an eternal outlook on the other side. Here's what I'm saying. Don't get lost in the temporary whiteout. Because God is a God who brings reason to the other side. To be a biblical maverick is to offend complacent Christianity. To be a biblical maverick is to be convicted by any casual stance in regards to biblical standards. Are you all okay? You with me? Verse 2 says, listen, when troubles of any kind come your way, any kind, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Guys, I'm not good at this. Like I walked in this morning and the sound faders were moving on their own. I was like, I rebuked that devil in the name of Jesus. It's not a devil, it's digital, it's issues. Then the air conditioner's not working. Then the lights were flashing. I was like, my God, my God. <laughs> and James says, I preached this message on Thursday. James says, you should walk in here and sweat and joy. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a hard time worshiping in first service because of all the things that are going on digitally on stage. What's not coming through, what is coming through. Pastor Letitia's singing beautifully, and then somebody else starts singing behind her as a divine echo that's interrupting. What she, so there's just stuff everywhere. And I'm like not happy and James says consider it a joy it would be like when I woke up that morning at 5 a.m. I walked in the living room and there was water coming into my living room from the ceiling that's not normally something good but James said I should have walked in and said Megan come see Megan gets out of bed, rubbing the Medusa out of her eyes, you know. Like, look, look the water. I'm talking like y'all now. Not at the water. We don't use prepositions in Cajun country. Look the water. You're welcome. Look the water coming down out of the ceiling. What a great joy. Are you nuts? I mean, she would think I had lost my mind. But James says, when you see that, when you experience it, don't get overwhelmed because my God is up to something. There's an eternal perspective to be seen. And by the way, James isn't talking about first world problems, like having some water in your living room. James isn't talking about first world problems, like only having two air conditioners that make it 80 degrees, instead of walking five miles on barefoot through thorns and rocks in order to gather together in the name of Jesus and hoping that the government doesn't show up with ARs and run you all off. 
See, we got first world issues most of the time. And our first world issues cause us to stop following Christ and stay home because it's easier to be comfortable than it is to be called. And I can't get no help on that sermon today. It is not easy to have an eternal outlook. Jesus said, peace I give unto you because in this life, my peace, he said, I got to give you my peace because in this life, you are going to face trouble, trials, challenges, and the things that are out of your control that you did not bring on yourself. I'm not talking about temptation that you succumbed to and you made an ungodly decision that is costing you a consequence. God can redeem that and forgive that and help you through that on the other side as well. But James is saying, hey, these things that are out of your control. I remember when my brother, who I didn't believe in while he was here, told all of his disciples, peace I give unto you that in this life you will face trouble but do not lose heart for I have overcome this life and that my friend is the most quoted and least applied scripture in all of the Bible we've heard it so many times that it doesn't even help anymore because we're good at hearing it but it is so hard to apply it Friends, everybody, church, body of Christ, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. Everybody has been through something that has marked them. And if you haven't, just wait. It's coming. Everybody has been moved. Everybody has had to go through something. God always challenges the earthly in order to perform the eternal. Joseph had a pit. Moses had a wilderness. David had a valley. Elijah had a cave. Naomi lost her whole family. And Mary watched her son be tortured into crucifixion. Everybody has been through something that leaves a mark, but I feel a preach coming on right here. We serve a God that doesn't waste a moment, much less a mark. God will use the wounds that you walk through as the proof and the evidence of who he is. He is a God that brings reason to everything that happens. He makes eternal miracles out of earthly mourning. It's what he does. It's who he is. He doesn't waste. He is not willing to watch you go through something and leave you the same way on the other side of what you were going to go through anyways. But he is with you. Come on, he is with you in the wilderness. He is with you in the valleys. He is with you in the trial. He is with you in the tragedy. And if God be for me and God be with me, then it doesn't matter where I am or what I'm going through as long as I keep walking with Jesus. Because it's in the wilderness. It's in the trials and the fires. It's in the valleys that we get to, dis- to see And we actually discern the divine intervention of God. See, because God intervenes all the time, but he only gets credit 
when it's at its worst. Come on, and, and, and even worse than that, sometimes we just take for granted all the things that God is doing, and we give God all the blame for what he's not doing. But it is in the wilderness and the fire and the trials and the valleys that we get to see God move with divine intervention. Hear me, everybody. Well, I'd love to hear the voice of the Lord. Would you? Because Paul heard the voice of the Lord, but he was willing to pay for hearing the voice of the Lord. Even more, he was willing to pay for obeying the voice of the Lord. Everybody wants a burning bush moment. Well, I wish God would just speak to me through a burning bush. We'll go through 40 years of a wilderness and he might speak to you through a burning bush. Everybody, come on, everybody wants to go through a resurrection. Everybody wants to get out of hell free card. Unfortunately, getting out of hell wasn't free and it isn't free. You're going to have to deny yourself, take up your cross, be crucified in the flesh so that God can resurrect you into life. That's just what it does. But we don't like hearing that. <clears throat> Because our Christianity doesn't cost us anything until it does. In fact, we get offended and go to other churches if preachers begin to talk about our Christianity costing us anything. Especially if they actually begin to say anything about my money. But number two, an unorthodox approach requires irrational obedience. It's people who are willing to do and go through things that other people just simply are not. Irrational obedience to the voice of God. So glad that somebody put this fan right here. My left side is soaking wet. My right side's like, you know, it's not that bad. I'm having a split personality right here. I want to tell you that the best things of God are hiding in the hardest places of life. I'm telling you. The kingdom things that God has for you, they are hiding in the hardest places of this life. <laughs> Gabriel loves it. I, I can't tell stories about Adeline because she comes to third service and I'd have to change my story for just that service. So Gabriel's still back there. I can talk about him. He loves, <laughs> he loves, he loves fishing. He, he just loves it. I, I think he actually just likes playing, like in general. He doesn't like work. I don't know where he gets that from. It must come from his mama's side. Um, but he loves to... <clears throat> He loves to fish. I, I like fishing. Like, it's all right. I'd rather duck hunt. Like, I love duck hunting. Um, I like deer hunting. Like, I, lo I, I love shooting a big deer, like, but I just don't like deer hunting. I like deer shooting. Okay, so anyways, I don't mind. Duck hunting's fun. And, and fishing, it, it can be fun. I just don't like messing with them, really. I don't like cleaning them. I, I love to eat them. If you catch them, cook them, clean them, bring them to me, I'll eat them up. Like, I love fish, but I just don't like fishing. <laughs> but Gabriel does, so I go... It's kind of like, I want to go to the mountains, but man, it's cold. Anyway, so I go fishing. And recently, somebody let us come to their pond. And, uh, and this person that let us come to their pond, they're like, hey, listen, I'm so sorry. There's so much grass in my pond. I was like, hey, please don't apologize for letting me fish in your pond for free. <laughs> like, I can fish around the grass. You know, all I have in my backyard is grass. There's no fish there. So, well, you have water. So, <laughs> so they let us fish. And, and I was like, hey, Gabriel, come on, let's go down here. Let's fish in this grass. He's like, I'm fishing the grass. I didn't say it like that because he's literally he's like, I don't want to fish. You know? 
So I was like, look, watch. And I, I took the bait and I, I hid the hook and I, I, I showed him. I, I even saw like a fish swimming around in the grass. I threw the, threw the bait and I saw the fish hit and he's like, okay. So he throws his bait, you know, I was like, look, let it sink, then pull it out and let it sink, then pull it out. Like they're going to get it. And so he tries a couple of times and he pulls in. Look, he's actually cleaning the guy's pond out, honestly. He was pulling all kind of grass to shore for the man that let us fish there. And, and he finally, he's just fussing about it. He's like, ah, I don't want to fish in the grass. I was like, okay, well, go up there and don't catch anything then. I don't care. So he went up there. He's fishing. He's like, it's easier up here. You know, he's fishing where it's clear and he's not catching anything. I was like, I'm a fish now that he's going up there where it's easy. And I'm fishing. Pow, I catch one. Gabriel! And he's, oh, I put that one back. I, ah, I got another. Gabriel! I'm kicking your tail, boy! He's like, how are you catching? Because listen, the hardest things of this life are where the best things of God are hiding. But you got to be willing, hear me, you got to be willing to fish in the hard place. You've got to be willing to follow. In the, you know why nobody in the church makes disciples and barely lives as a disciple? Because fishing in the hard place is hard. And discipleship is messy. And growing in your relationship to, with Jesus to a point where you are willing to irrationally obey him and host somebody in your house, lead or co-lead, sign up and show up, Actually, go, not just come on Sunday, but get involved and plugged in to the body of Christ where you're not just becoming a disciple, but you're helping somebody else become a disciple because you're not actually a disciple until you make a disciple because Jesus said, go and make. It's irrational obedience. Listen, hear me. This is so important. Irrational obedience does not make sense to people who are not actually following Jesus. And watch. This is not an opportunity for you to become spiritually arrogant. You got to be careful. Did you know that you can become prideful in your giving? It's when you give and you know other people don't and you become bitter at that person for not. You can become bitter in your serving. That, that happens to a lot of pastors. It happens to a lot of people in the church. They serve so much, and then they get frustrated with people that aren't serving. Guys, that's just arrogance manifesting. They get, they get tired of being the only ones. That are, I'm the only one that's ever here. I'm the only one that ever served. I don't know why they need to come. Why are they calling me again? But you can't become arrogant in what God's called you to do. In fact, just the opposite should happen. You, you don't let it make you arrogant. You let it be an example for you. And you're just so grateful to God that you understand what he's called you to. So you're not offended at people that don't understand yet. You're anointed to help them understand. It is you that they're going to follow and him that they're going to find. Come on, somebody. That is good Christianity. It's biblical, but it's unorthodox. See, most people who go to church in this country, their Christianity is circumstantial. Their commitment to Jesus is based upon what Jesus will do for them. They are not ready and or willing to do anything for him. And our Christianity cannot be circumstantial. It has to be covenantal. It has to be a covenant that we make, that we are willing to do whatever, whenever, wherever, as long as we're walking with Jesus because he didn't just make a way, he showed us the way. 
And he will never ask you to do anything that he has not already done and he won't help you accomplish. Living for Jesus will test your faith. But you know that when your faith, and by the way, that word has nothing to do with believing. It has nothing to do with the mentality between your ears that you would agree that Jesus exists. That's not what this word means. The better translation of this word, and it's translated this, this way in every text. The better translation would be for you know that when your purity is tested. You know that when your fidelity is tested. You know that when your faithfulness is tested. You know that when your commitment to Jesus is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. It is only in the test that you can develop a testimony. I know it is cliche, but nobody cares what you say you believe if you haven't been through and you're not willing to go any, through anything to prove it. And that's what's wrong with the church. We say one thing. It's why we've lost influence in this society. And this culture is anti-Christian. They don't want to hear it anymore. They want to see it for the first time ever. They don't need a bunch of perfect people. They just need a bunch of authentic people who are irrationally obedient to a holy God. Especially when it doesn't make I'm going to hurt myself trying to get this across to y'all. I'm going to change shirts for third service just to help them out. This life will require irrational obedience. Living for Jesus will require obedience that does not make sense in the moment. It doesn't make any sense. I was having a conversation with a business owner just yesterday and all the things that he felt like God was calling him to do. And I was like, man, I'm with you. I was saving for a building. I wanted to pay cash. I didn't want to put the church in any kind of debt. I didn't want to take a mortgage. We were saving and doing, and then God told my wife to start a school. Why'd you do that? And then God told us that we needed to build a school because we don't like telling people that we don't have room. Did you know that you can overspend and you have to give God an account for that, but you can underinvest and you'll have to give God an account for that? I think a lot of churches are guilty of underinvesting in their community. That's why their community doesn't know that there's a church where they are. And if that church closed down today, their community wouldn't miss it. I want to be a body of believers that if we had to shut down for some reason, this city would miss the body of Christ serving and giving and going and growing and doing whatever, whenever, however. God told them to do it even if it doesn't make sense financially. Even if it doesn't make sense in our schedule. Even if it doesn't make sense in our effort. Why are we spending all this money? We need to be saving for this. We need to be saving for this. Because I refuse to be a pastor that goes that oversees a church and or a budget that oversaves and underinvest. Just as much as I refuse to be a pastor that overspends and undersaves and or undergives. This is a covenant. Hear this, the miraculous moves of God are always tied to irrational obedience of people. Every, here, listen, every miracle that we see in the Word of God, every miracle that God did required irrational obedience on behalf of the person that He did it for. 
Elisha said, the school's not big enough, build another one. While they're building the school, the prophet's axe head falls in the water. God tells Elisha, throw a stick in the water, I'll make the axe head float. That makes no sense. Joshua, think about this. The stories that we celebrate because we know how they ended, right? We're, we're currently stuck in the whiteout, but when we read scripture, we get to see the eternal outlook. And we read scripture and we go, man, I can't believe they doubted that. I can't believe they did that. And yet we do the same thing in our generation. <laughs> we just give them more credit for their doubt than we are convicted by ours. I can't preach that. I ain't got time today. We look at Joshua. <laughs> we look at Joshua. And God said, all right, Joshua, we want you to walk around this wall. And after six days of walking around this wall, I want you to yell at it. <laughs> go tell my people. God, could you tell them for real, man? Come on. Like Moses just died. I just got this seat. Like I don't even really want to be here. Joshua, go tell my people to walk around the wall for six days. Don't say a word. God, I don't want to tell people to fast. I don't want to tell people to ask you to give. I, I don't want to call people and beg them to lead a small group if they don't want to. No, no, no. Go tell my people to walk around the wall. And then on the sixth day, y'all yell at it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't want to scream because my microphone, I can't move it back away. And then the wall fell. The wall fell down. It doesn't make any sense. It's irrational. Gideon, I want you to get ready to go up against these Midianites. Are you ready, Gideon? Yes, sir, I'm ready. Hang on, you got too many people. I got too many, huh? <laughs> have you seen how many people they have? Yeah, I want you to take your people down to the water. And the ones who lap up the water like dogs... Let's keep them. You want me to keep who? <laughs> All right, 300 of y'all. Okay, God, we have had revival. I have dwindled this thing down to a manageable level. Y'all make some clay pots. We'll make some, some, huh? We got swords and spears. We're ready. No, no, no. Clay pots. Put a light in it. Go to the top of the hill. Listen to this. It's very important, Gideon. Smash the pots. <laughs> Guys, thus saith the Lord, make some clay pots. They're going to kill me. Put some lights in it. We're going to march up to that mountain. And we're going to smash them. <laughs> and they go. And they do it. And God confuses the enemy. Why? Because worship is always confounding in the middle of a war. And if you will worship in the middle of your war, if you will praise God under pressure, it is irrational obedience that leads to miraculous moves of God. Fast forward with me. The disciples, Jesus, Jesus, this is such a good sermon. It really is. But the people... 
Not us, not us, Pastor. But but other I've heard other people say this is such a good sermon. I just but but other people are hungry. And so if like point number three, go ahead and get ready to wrap it up. If you could bring up the worship team, Jesus, that'd be great. Give them hope for a moment. Um, and Jesus looks back to the disciples and says, you feed them. God, uh, we don't have anything. He says, no, no, no. What do you have? God, you don't understand. I don't have enough time. No, no, no. I didn't ask you what you don't have. God, I can't afford to. No, no, no. I didn't ask you what you can't do. What do you have? And the disciples say, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. Also 5,000 men and their women and children. We have all of that. And nobody decided to give Jesus a math lesson in that moment. That five plus two does not equal 15,000 meals. Nor does the Eunice economy equal millions of dollars worth of buildings in the middle of a recession. I don't want to. Let's do it. Jesus said, you got five loaves and two fish? Bring it to me. I've seen him move too many times. He told the disciples, get people in groups of 50 because discipleship and real feeding always happens in groups. Get them in groups of 50 and sit down. <laughs> and the Bible says, and they did so. Irrational obedience. The miraculous moves of God. See, when we obey God in the natural, it makes room for God to perform the supernatural. Let me say it in a less spiritual way. When you do everything that you know to do, you have officially arrived at the place where God is getting ready to show you what only he can do. God will allow you to go through more than you can handle. He will address you with enemies that you can't overcome, but the world may come with you at sword and spear or recession and or depression but you serve a God who said peace I give unto you that things are going to happen in this world but you can't lose heart for I have already overcome and I am the Lord your God if I've done it before I'll do it again but in order to see me do for them what I did then you have got to be willing to go through what they went through and obey the way that they obeyed. Your Christianity has got to be unorthodox. You have to become a maverick with an eternal outlook. Irrational obedience. Why? Because number three, those things lead to supernatural stability. 
if you think you're stable in Christ, because we thought we were building a great church until March of 2020. And we realized that we were not nearly as stable as we thought we were. It was the trial. It was the challenge that showed us where we needed to grow. And we came out on the other side with a supernatural stability that we are still striving in and continuing to grow and minister to. Verse four, so let it grow. Come on, let, let it grow. It's not gonna grow if you pull whenever it gets difficult. It's not gonna grow, come on, if you just keep moving it every time it gets hard. You gotta be planted. No matter the circumstance, your commitment to Jesus is not a circumstance, it's a covenant. Your marriage is not a circumstance, it's a covenant. Your friendships that you have established, they're going to have conflict. The family of God and your immediate and or extended family. Anything worth having is going to require the work and the effort and the energy of investing. But watch God move in the miraculous and give you supernatural stability. There's two more scriptures there for reference, just because I wanted you to see that James wasn't the only apostle that said this. That's in your notes. You can follow up with those later. I want to make this one more statement, and I'm going to pray. It is the unorthodox that makes room for the unbelievable. I can't tell you the number of times that I've asked God, are you sure? over the last decade and a half. And at times I even became arrogant or prideful in it. But I stand here today as nothing more, nothing more than a living example of what God will do if you will just obey. Unorthodox. I look back over my life and I'd have to take another hour just to share a portion of the unbelievable, the unbelievable things that I have seen God do with simple acts of obedience.